0: You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who bring offerings in righteousness, and offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud labourers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty.
1: Thanks, Joe. I used to be guilty of uh, the same thing, Colin, of not knowing who the Bible reader was, but I used to say, and the Bible will now be read for, and just look for who would actually stir at that point. Ah, thank you, Joanne. It's lovely to see. You You know, I'd just try and cover it a bit better, I think. (laughs) So, uh, but uh, on the one or two occasions, uh, no one stirred. (laughs) And that that, that does get awkward, I have to say. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for... Uh, Inviting me along uh, and uh, being, uh, you know, prepared. Thank you, Colin. Being prepared to share your pulpit. uh, It's a great privilege to come and uh, to be part of a church that I've obviously been heavily involved in. Being um, the the pastor of the church that sent the Woodcroft team out, uh, and I know many of people here. But. It's great to see some non-familiar faces as well. So, uh, yeah, and great also to dig into uh, Malachi chapter 2. The first sermon I ever preached was on Malachi. Uh, So there's a bit of history for you. Uh, In hindsight, that was a really dumb thing to do, can I say? But I've got a bit more experience under my belt now, so uh, it's great. Now, we long for justice, don't we? We live in a world uh, that is very aware of injustice and sometimes so that longing for justice is we see stuff happening uh, in the big picture uh, and we see racism and sexism and other forms of injustice and our world is really caught up in that and maybe we feel that ourselves. Sometimes though it's, it's personal and we are actually the victims of injustice. And we, we have that sense in our gut, don't we, that, that we cry for justice. Someone actually has to pay for our pain and for our suffering. But there's a trick, isn't there? I was, hearing, uh, I was listening to a podcast during the week... Uh, and uh, a guy is there talking uh, to a lady who's a specialist uh, in kind of the gender relationship kind of area, and they were talking about education, and they were talking about how... Uh, education has moved from a, quite a male-centric model uh, to quite a female-centric model and there's probably people here who understand more ag- about this and uh, they were sort of talking about maybe some of the problems that our younger men are having in the education system and uh, this lady said she raised that with people in authority and someone said to her, well, when the boot's been on the other foot for 2,000 years, we'll look at it. There's a sense that it was wrong We fixed it and we just flipped it. And so now the people who were on top are on the bottom and that's good and that's right. And sometimes if we're actually honest with ourselves, our cry for justice is actually not a cry for justice but for revenge, isn't it? We actually want someone to pay, someone to suffer as we've suffered and we're actually quite happy about that. Victims become perpetrators... We become, perhaps, what we hate. And nothing changes, does it? Society doesn't change. The world's not a better place for that. It's just there's different people on the top and different people on the bottom. Malachi takes us into this. We've got four points this morning, so you know roughly where I'm going. The crisis of faith, pass the pain, pay the price and then our last one, agents of change. Now, let me say, don't expect me to spend exactly the same amount of time in all four of those, so don't panic if I've gone long on the first one or vice versa. So, The first point, our crisis of faith. You've been working through uh, Malachi, so you'll probably be familiar with the situation. Judah, those, that southern kingdom, has uh, come back out of exile. So in the Early seventh century BC, the Babylonians had come in and grabbed them and picked them up en masse and deported them. And then there was a change of government back in Babylon and the Persians came in and the Persians said, Fine, you can go home So they, they went home and they reestablished the kingdom and they rebuilt the temple and they came back to Canaan. But they were actually they were still under the thumb. Because at the top wasn't the kings of Israel. At the top was the kings of Persia. And they were godless. They didn't worship the God of Israel, the one true God. And they were immoral and power plays, injustice and oppression were just tools of government. So if we need to keep you in line, we'll just squash you. You get out of line, we'll squash you harder. And those in Judah who collaborated who got on board with the Persian overlords, they were the ones that got ahead. And the people who tried to live faithfully, they were the ones who suffered. And it was a particular crisis for Israel because the scriptures teach us that God is their one true God, that he reigns over all. And so they cry out, where is the God of justice? And maybe that's been our cry as well. Because we know that the Bible teaches us that God is holy. He hates injustice. He's the God, the Old Testament tells us, that defends the widow and the orphan and the foreigner. He is all good and all powerful and all knowing. And so he understands what's happening to you. He is in control of what's happening to you. And he has the power to do something about it. And so we feel this, don't we? We cry, perhaps, with Israel where is the God of justice? We see it on our news and we cry. We feel it. There has got to be something better. Why doesn't God act? And so malachi picks up this complaint but he flips it on them you've wearied the lord with your words malachi says how have we wearied him you ask by saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the lord and he is pleased with them Or where is the god of justice you feel that complaint though don't you if we're honest we kind of get israel And we kind of think, yeah, if I was there, I'd be saying the same thing. But maybe this morning you're someone who's not not a Christian and you're looking at us and going, yeah, I can see how that's a problem for you. But can um, can I ask you a question? How would you explain your cry for justice? Because you know what? If you take God out of the picture, all you have left is survival of the fittest. Strong survive and prey on the weak. It's all about power. That's what it comes back to. And justice makes no sense if you take God out of the picture. So, how do we wrestle with this? Ultimately, we need the God of justice, and Israel knew that, and we need that, we know that. There's a guy by the name of Miroslav Volf, uh, he's a Croatian, and he lived uh, in uh, what was formerly known as Yugoslavia, while the Soviets had control, and then he was in uh, that kind of Croatia through that uh, civil war that tore that, those nations apart. And so he's very intimately exposed to the issues of injustice. And he writes on it and he says, the only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves, the only way of stopping us picking up the sword and acting is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. The only right hand to wield the sword of judgment is God's hand. My thesis that the practice of non-violence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many. It's a bit of an understatement, isn't it? As a nation, we don't like the idea that God judges. But can I say, we need a God who judges. Otherwise, the strong prey on the weak And that's the way it is. So, brings us to our second point. past the pain. Israel's there, Judah's there, and they are giving up on God. They're looking around and they're saying, as we've echoed, where is the God of justice? Where is, you know, those who compromise, those who get on board with the Persians, those who ditch their faith in God, they're the ones that God seems to be Blessing. The ones who are faithful, they're the ones that seem to be ground under. Why why would you follow Yahweh? And so Israel was giving up on God. They were becoming what they hated. God says, or Malachi says, uh, or God says through Malachi, let me say, verse uh, 5 of chapter 3. He says, I will be quick to testify against the sorcerers, the adulterers, the perjurers, those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, who deprive foreigners amongst you of justice, but do not fear me. What are they saying? Well, if God's not going to look after us, we may as well look after ourselves. And we're going to do that the way that everyone else does it, survival of the fittest. And if we can't get rid of the Persians, if I can't kick them, there is always someone else I can kick. There's a uh, cartoon from a while ago, so it reflects older social values, and it's a series of scenes. The boss kicks the worker. The worker goes home, it's a male in this situation, he kicks his wife. She turns around, kicks the kids, the kids then pick on the pets and it goes down through the ranking. But you see the thing, and this is what Israel is doing, they say, we can't get to them. But you know what? Who do I have power over? My employees. And so I defraud them of wages. Who do I have power over? My neighbours. And so I lie about them and I cheat. Morality goes out the window exploitation becomes normal it's all about what i can get and so the victim becomes the perpetrator and you can hear the justifications going on in their head can't you you can hear them explaining to themselves why this is okay what about us do we do the same do we say in essence God's not going to act, so I need to. So maybe we've got political power in our organisations. And so we leverage things to look after ourselves, to look after our tribe, our people. Maybe we have positions within organisations, within companies, within families, and we leverage those positions for our advantage Maybe we have positions within church and we lean on people to get things happening the way that we want. I was once part of a church and there was a lady there on the parish council and I can honestly say, I can honestly say that she never opened her mouth except when her pet issues came up and it was always about defending the status quo. If anyone suggested that maybe something might change in that area, all of a sudden, She threw a weight behind that. But she didn't really care about anything else. It was about protecting her own interests. Maybe we use our personal skills, our personal power, and we gossip, and we exclude, and we bully. Maybe we manipulate others. Maybe we use our physical power. And we stand over people. We bully people in the schoolyard, in the workplace. Maybe we do it in the home environment. Maybe it's psychological. And this is interesting, isn't it? One of the greatest weapons in this war is the claim of victimhood, isn't it? We claim that we are a victim and then we use that as a weapon to oppress those who we believe are oppressing us. It's your turn to be on the bottom. And so justice becomes more about revenge. How do we know? The thing that I think you need to watch for is your little justifications. When you start telling yourself that this is okay, it's pretty sure a sign that your conscience is saying, actually, this is not okay. And you've got that little voice coming in going, actually, this is okay because of this or this or this. And when you start saying, this is okay because this has happened to me. And so that somehow justifies you doing it to another. Do you see that if we act in that way, it's the way that the world acts, can I say. But nothing ever changes. And we know it's not the way that God puts before us. Jesus tells us that we as Christians are to be the light of the world, that we are the salt of the earth, that we are the ones who bring the change. So how are we going to do that? Brings us to our third point. What's God's answer? He says to Israel, you've been crying for justice and now you are going to get what you've been asking for. I will send my messenger, he says in verse 1, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you seek will come to his temple. The messenger of his covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. God says, you've been wondering where the God of justice is. Let me say he's coming. I'm going to send a messenger who's going to get you ready. And then the Lord is going to appear at the heart of Israel's life. At the temple, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. And he's described as the messenger of the covenant. Now, this idea of covenant is an idea uh, that's there in Scripture, and it's the relationship between God and his people. And it's a formal relationship. And so when you go back in the Old Testament, you'll find that there are times like when God has saved his people out of out of slavery in Egypt. And he brings them to Mount Sinai and He makes a covenant with them. And the covenant involves both privileges and responsibilities. It's a two-way thing. It's kind of like um, marriage vows. You know? You make promises to each other that this is how this relationship is going to work. That's a covenant. And God and Israel had bound each other, or God had bound Israel to Him, Himself, in covenant. And that covenant had responsibilities and obligations. The messenger of the covenant is going to come. And then what does Malachi say? Who can endure? Who can stand when He appears? The word here for standing uh, is the idea of uh, a military formation withstanding the assault of the enemy. So if you imagine, you know, the shields of the soldiers and this force is coming against them. And what's Malachi saying? Who can stand? The implication being, no one. No one is going to stand. And if we are honest who can stand? God is saying, I will come to you and put you on trial. Israel's there saying, put them on trial. But God's saying, I've got a relationship with you. It is defined in this covenant and you are in breach. Let's not worry about them. You are in breach. So the messenger of the covenant, the Lord of justice, is going to turn up and put them on trial. And for us, we have to ask ourselves the same thing. If we were to stand before God in judgment, could we endure? Yes, we are victims, and some of us horribly so. But if we are honest with ourselves, we are all perpetrators too. We can argue about degrees of guilt. But the scripture is clear. Habakkuk 1, your eyes, Lord, are too pure to look on evil. It's not about degrees. We are all guilty as charged. Proverbs Who can say, I have kept my heart pure, I am clean and without sin? All of us are guilty as charged. Who can stand? But you know what? There's more to this passage and there's more to Scripture. There's more to what God is doing than just those verses that I've picked out. You possibly know the story. The messenger was sent, John the Baptist, Sent to prepare the way for the Lord. Fulfilling this promise through, uh, through Malachi, fulfilling, fulfilling the promise uh, through Isaiah. And then the Lord, he appeared. The Lord Jesus, God's son. The one perfectly holy, perfectly loving, fully God, fully man. He comes to us as one of us. He is born of the Virgin Mary so that he can stand not just over us but alongside us. And Jesus lives as the perfect person. He fulfills that covenant relationship with God with 100% completion. What God required... Jesus fulfilled. And so Peter can say this, he committed no sin. This is speaking of Jesus. No deceit was found in his mouth. Isaiah looked forward to to the Lord Jesus and he spoke in these terms. He says, a bruised reed he would not break. He is that gentle. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. We have love and justice together. And most of you will know the story. The only just man. The only one who could stand before God. The only one who would be declared not guilty. He is handed over. Betrayed into horrific injustice. He is handed over to execution as a matter of political expedience. Pilate washes his hands and then gives over Jesus into judicial murder to preserve the power of the elite. It's simply too much hassle to acquit the one innocent man. And so the Jewish leaders cry for his execution They want him out of the way. Pilate gives in because you know what? That's just the easy path. Injustice, injustice, injustice. And this is the only one, this is the only one who has been in no way inflicting that injustice on others. And so when the apostles stand before the Jewish leaders just a couple of months later... They say this, you handed Jesus over to be killed. You had disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. Remember, Pilate's there going, this man, is innocent. But then he just couldn't be bothered. He just handed him over. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. It's quite a, quite a statement to make before the ruling authorities, isn't it? You killed the author of life. The one in whom God's love and justice meet. You handed him over to Pilate who nailed him to the cross. They go on. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through the prophets, saying his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins might be wiped out. Remember who he's talking to here. They're talking to the men who handed Jesus over, who twisted Pilate's arm. And he's saying forgiveness is possible. Repent, turn away from your sin, turn away from your rebellion. Forgiveness is possible through the death and the resurrection of Christ. Someone has to pay and the Bible tells us that the one person who had no debt paid our debt in full. So how does that change us? How does that make us, as we live in an unjust world, how does it shift things for us? See, God doesn't, Malachi doesn't finish just with those couple of verses. There's a bit in the middle that I haven't gone to yet. Okay. This is Malachi speaking of the Lord, the Lord Jesus. He's, he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner or a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites. They were like the the priests uh, and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. When we see Malachi's promise in light of what we know of what God has done through the life of, death and resurrection of Jesus we see that what God's promising here is that the fire of judgment falls on Christ so that the fire of refining might transform those whose faith is in him those who've repented and turned to Christ they don't have to fear the judgment who can stand we can stand because of the perfect righteousness of Christ that comes to us. And so when the fire falls, as it did at Pentecost, it is the fire of his love that comes to transform us, to melt our hearts, to change our lives. Do we feel that? Do we see that? So what does it mean for injustice? I just want to finish up just with two final points. When we oppose injustice and when we endure injustice. When we oppose injustice, we need to avoid the self-righteousness that we so often see. You see it, don't you, in the moral crusades that are out there in our societies and perhaps in ourselves as we embark on those same crusades. Pick your pet topic and there is such a level of condemnation and judgment that comes through it. I I do a lot of work now in Melbourne, so I find myself over there. Um, I don't like Melbourne very much, you know, we're Adelaide aren't we okay come on you don't like them do we no anyway sorry um, I shouldn't have gone there but uh, one of the funny things in Melbourne uh, is that there's a really uh, hardcore environmental movement and there was a situation where someone was going around in the evenings you put your bins out on the, on the street and they were going through your bins and they were checking to make sure you'd actually put all the recycling in the recycling all the green in the green and if you didn't They whacked massive stickers to shame you. To point out that you are an environmental sinner. Is it good to be environmentally conscious? Can I say, yeah, I think it is. Okay, I think it's all about stewarding creation. Don't hear me say that environmental care is a bad thing. But that level of judgment and self-righteousness that was in it. But what does the gospel actually tell us? The gospel tells us, that we are sinners saved by grace. We come to God, we are righteous before him. We stand by his grace through faith. And Ephesians 2 tells us that that faith itself is a gift of God, so that none of us can boast. So when we come to oppose injustice, and brothers and sisters, there is injustice to be opposed. And as Christians, we should stand. But we don't do it as the world does it. That we are so righteous and you are so terrible. We do it with humility. We do it with grace. Because we are sinners as they are sinners. Paul says it like this in Romans 2. You therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you, point, you point, whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. You know, someone said, for every finger that we point at someone else, there's a whole lot pointing back at us. And in Christ, we know that, don't we? None of us can stand and say, I am righteous and you are the sinner. So as we oppose injustice... We act not in vengeance, not out of our righteousness, but out of love for the people. We act to protect the innocent, the weak, the marginalised and the oppressed. We act in love. We act for their good. It's not about revenge. Like the Lord Jesus, we are gentle and loving. We seek to restore, to lead to repentance, rather than to punish. Miroslav Volf says it like this, he says, Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans. And I exclude myself from the community of sinners. The Bible tells us we are sinners. But we have been wonderfully saved by the perfect finished work of Christ. And if necessary, we suffer. We suffer. But we remember that our God is a God of resurrection. They killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And there is hope that is coming. What about enduring injustice? Because sometimes when we, uh, in this world... Sometimes there is no justice in this life. We lack the means, we lack the power. Judah was there, they could not overthrow the Persian overlords. It was beyond them. And God at that time was not doing it. We could become embittered. We could become angry. It could push us over the line like it pushed Judah over the line. If I don't do this, someone uh, it, it, who will? Miroslav Volf: "The practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Do we know that God will judge? In Christ, judgment has fallen. We see how seriously God takes sin. And he will judge. And he will bring perfect justice. And that judgment has fallen at the cross. And so we can know that. That whatever has happened to us, whatever will happen to us, God is not going to just forget about it. The price will be paid. Judgment will come. And the wonderful truth is... Is that he has borne judgment in Christ. And so we who are guilty, like the perpetrators who are afflicting us, we have found that grace. They might find that grace too. We can leave it to God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, Romans 12. I will repay. Don't pick up the swords, brothers and sisters. You lack the right, you lack the wisdom, and you lack the power. But God lacks none of that. Christ is returning. He will judge the hearts of us. And who will stand? Well, the great message is that we can, through Christ. We look forward, as Peter says, to a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We have a hope and we have a guarantee that that is ours in Christ. Let's pray. Father, it is a a serious word that Malachi brought to Judah, calling out their injustice, exposing their hypocrisy, Father, it's a serious word by your spirit that Malachi speaks to us. We may be guilty of the same things of thinking that we need to take the sword into our own hands. That we are righteous and they are sinners and we have the right to punish. Father, forgive us. Show us our hypocrisy. Lead us to the cross where we see your justice and your love perfectly met in Christ. And Father, let us know that you understand that in Christ you have experienced what it is to be the victim of injustice. But in Christ you have acted to bring an end to injustice the injustice in our own hearts as well as the injustice within our world father help us live as agents of change acting to bring justice in love humility with grace and mercy and father we pray that your spirit would guide us as we do this we pray this in christ's name amen